You're listening to What's the Point, an Arthur newspaper production broadcast by Trent Radio, 92.7 CFFF FM in Peterborough, Ontario, every Thursday at noon and podcasted on our website, www.trentarthur.ca. I'm Brazil. And I'm Nick. And we're the co-hosts of What's the Point and the co-editors of Arthur newspaper for volume 55. In this episode of What's the Point, we are talking about the pandemic. Did you know that we're in a global pandemic? Well, yeah, you obviously do. And this is barely a funny joke at this point because we are a month away from being a year in this hellish purgatory. But you should know that this purgatory is not the same for you as it is for everyone. While this might be a unifying global experience, it is felt differently along the many fault lines of inequities and oppressions that exist in our sadistic world. This episode may be called Why COVID is a Class War, but we will be talking about much more than class. We'll be breaking down global health, the present crisis, vaccine inequity, and more through the lens of feminist political economy. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry. We'll be joined by none other than Dr. Colleen O'Manick, Trent professor and expert on the topic. Well, my name is uh, Colleen O'Manick, and I'm a professor in the Department of International Development Studies at Trent University. She works in International Development Studies, as well as Gender and Social Justice at Trent, where she teaches courses on feminist political economy and ecology, gender justice, health, and global health policy and governance. Omanik has written and co-authored many publications on critical feminist perspectives on global HIV-AIDS policy, sexual and reproductive health and rights, as well as global health security. She's the author of the book Neoliberalism and AIDS Crisis in Sub-Saharan Africa, Globalization's Pandemic, and her most recent co-edited book with Peter P. Faree, Global Health and Security, Critical Feminist Perspectives. Uh, my research focuses, uh, very broadly speaking, on the global political economy of health, uh, policy responses to global health issues, um, and most of my work is from a feminist and post-colonial perspective. So political economy uh, in very general terms, and here I'm, I'm really talking about um, sort of Canadian political economy or heterodox political economy. Heterodox economics just refers to the study of economics outside of the confines of the mainstream neoclassical economics. So political economy, um, it's a holistic approach to understanding society in its totality. So rather than seeking explanations through narrowly constructed disciplines, it analyzes the interrelationships among the economic, the political, the cultural and the ideological dimensions of social life. An analysis of the ways that society produces itself through their labor of its population is, is quite central to political economy. So um, the processes of production and reproduction. So for feminist political economists in particular, and I consider myself a feminist political economist, Social reproduction or reproductive labor is really critical to understand. And this is the labor, the work that reproduces laboring bodies and the work that's largely undervalued and feminized. 
much of it is done within the confines of the household. So just producing babies, producing people, but also uh, doing all the work uh, that keep bodies alive. So um, political economists of health uh, focus on the systemic features of our social formations that shape health and disease as well as access to the social determinants of health. And that global health is inherently political as well as social and responses to health issues are the product of deep inequalities that have their legacies in the history of today's globalized nation state system. Amanik describes what this discipline has to offer us in our attempts to understand this global crisis. Feminist political economy helps to poke holes in the mainstream account of the pandemic. So we see in dominant explanations of the pandemic um, that are delivered by politicians um, and by the mainstream media that that they're understood through the narrow lenses of particular disciplines, um, biomedicine, epidemiology, and public health. And these, of course, are critically important uh, to understanding the virus as well as to understanding and to formulating responses uh, to, to the pandemic. There's also a lot of talk um, in the mainstream uh, media about the impacts on the economy and on economic growth and this notion that we have to keep supply chains uh, from breaking, right? We need to continue to produce. But certain very critical questions uh, get left out. For example, uh, who in society is most impacted, not just in terms of their access to medical treatment, not just in terms of mortality and morbidity, but in terms of their uh, risk of infection because of the kind of labor that they do, uh, their livelihoods and their physical and mental health, who is being left untreated uh, for a whole range of other health conditions, uh, both physical and mental health conditions uh, that are intensifying as well as being sidelined given the almost single-minded focus on um, COVID-19. What are the longer consequences, uh, the longer-term consequences with regard to the deepening of already grotesque inequality, not just between nation states, but within nation states. I think it's important that the government uh, in the first instance understand the the embodied realities of people's lives during a pandemic or any kind of health emergency. They need to dig deeper than what now is a single-minded focus on keeping commodity chains from breaking or growing um, the economy to other measures. So many of the measures that they have put in place, of course, are really important. Physical distancing, uh, staying at home, washing our hands, treating those who have become infected. Also just the rollout of short-term emergency financial measures. And actually, I think that the Canadian government has done, uh, compared to other countries, a very, very good job of that, uh, especially at the beginning. But I think that what they haven't really paid attention to is measures for laborers whose work has intensified and has really put them at risk. So poorly paid frontline workers in the healthcare system, uh, in Amazon warehouses, in long-term care homes, PSWs, personal support workers, also migrant laborers who are on short-term contracts that are working in fields and factories who have no choice but to risk infection in order to put food on the table. The negligence of government is clear here in the failure to report workplace outbreaks, 
This has been a huge blind spot for both the government and the media. The state does not require public health departments to make this information available to the public, and this is another way in which the state has safeguarded corporate interests over the interests of everyday workers. Due to the lack of data available about workplace outbreaks during the pandemic, it has been hard for journalists to articulate the severity of this issue. For example, Amazon Canada has refused to provide information about outbreaks in their warehouses. But the Toronto Star's work and wealth reporter, Sara Mojtahedzadeh, has done a lot of work to bring this story to light. In December, the Star published an investigative piece that revealed there had been 25 cases in one Brampton warehouse alone. An essential worker doesn't just mean, you know, those who work in hospitals or at grocery stores. Toronto Star data analyst named Andrew Bailey found that at the beginning of February, 65% of workers in the GTA, meaning over 2 million people, were working in sectors that are considered essential and were working in person. If these employers are anything like Amazon Canada, who in December told their employees to stay home if they had flu-like symptoms, while at the same time incentivize perfect attendance through a cash prize lottery-style contest, well, we can begin to understand why one worker quoted in Mojtahed Sade's article said, quote, our bodies are disposable, unquote. These circumstances, combined with weak labor laws and poor standards for transparency, provide the perfect conditions for COVID to spread in factories, warehouses, and other places where workers make a living. The Ford government's continued refusal to implement paid sick days amidst the pandemic is just one example of how policy, or lack thereof, translates into the embodied realities of workers. There is perhaps no sector that would benefit more from paid sick days than long-term care, as large numbers of staff have experienced illness and absence in the face of institutional outbreaks. Nora Loretto, an independent journalist from Quebec City, has been tracking COVID deaths tied to residential care homes since the early days of the pandemic. She's been trying to sound the alarm on the long-term care crisis since well before it made national headlines in June 2020, when Canada's National Health Agency reported that we had the worst record among OECD nations for COVID-19-related deaths in long-term care facilities. As of February 10th, Loretto had tied 15,008 COVID deaths of Canada's total 21,000 to residential care homes. That's 72% of COVID deaths total. Her data sets disaggregate residential care homes along private versus public and for-profit versus not-profit lines. The majority of deaths have taken place in private residential care homes, and in Ontario, 68% of long-term care COVID deaths have taken place in private and for-profit facilities. Others um, who are working are also, in a sense, at the end of their rope. Um, their positions have um, were already part-time and precarious positions. Um, we've known about this, for example, in long-term care home and for personal support workers. They've been raising the alarm bells for over a decade about the standards of employment as being part-time and precarious and exhausting, yet those have not changed and um, in fact have become more intensified. And many scholars say that Canada's residential care home crisis should not come as a surprise. In a recent article in The Lancet, Canadian writer Paul Webster explored the historical reasons for the poor conditions in this sector. The following is an excerpt from this article. 
Pat Armstrong, a sociologist at York University in Toronto who has studied Canada's long-term care facilities for almost 30 years, firmly believes that Canada's dismal record stems from a historical decision to exclude long-term care facilities from Canada's network of 13 provincial and territorial public health systems. This has resulted in under-training and poor treatment of workers, substandard and aging facilities, overcrowding, and poor infection control capabilities, she says. Armstrong also argues, on the basis of a weighty body of published research, that a lack of government oversight and accountability to residents, especially in Canada's privately owned, profit-oriented long-term care facilities, which account for 54% of all facilities, has deeply darkened the picture. She says, there's plenty of evidence of lower quality care in the privately owned facilities. Scholars like Armstrong and Omanic have been echoing calls from PSWs other residential care workers, and their unions to improve working and living conditions in these facilities. Another scholar following this work closely is Catherine Scott, a senior economist at the Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. She has published several briefing notes throughout the pandemic, focusing on issues across the board, long-term care, feminized labour, and childcare. Catherine Scott, she put out a great brief in September um, about the gross inadequacies of Canada's childcare system. And her research, she has done some research that has modeled the extent to which economic losses have fallen heavily on women, and most dramatically on women who are living on low incomes and who experience intersecting inequalities based on race, class, gender, sexuality, disability, education, migration, uh, and immigration status. And many have either lost their jobs or else have had their hours dramatically cut. And she noted that Indigenous women, uh, women with disabilities, and racialized and transgender women have been facing the greatest challenges because they were already uh, most likely to be living in poverty and to be experiencing violence. The sweeping inequities of the pandemic were not surprising to those working in this field. In the early days, Scott published a note outlining Canada's long-term care situation. Quote, The pandemic is now exposing the graphic weakness of our current system and significant disparities in levels of care quality, both between and within provinces, end quote. Citing a failure to provide enough beds, homes that are not prepared for high levels of care, the material impossibility of physical distancing in many of the facilities, as well as the complexities of contracting food, laundry, and housekeeping services out. Scott writes that, quote, bringing outsiders into the home on a daily basis and limiting managerial control over the quality of work, end quote, has resulted in these disparate levels of care. More recently, Scott has shed light on the impact of the pandemic on women, specifically racialized, indigenous, transgender, low-income, precariously employed, as well as women who are lone mothers um, living in Canada. And these are also um, the people that have least access to affordable food, to quality housing, and to health services, um, and other kinds of social supports. So you see how this pandemic magnifies all sorts of existing uh, inequalities. I mean, just across the board. 
This magnification of existing inequalities is illustrated by every facet of the pandemic. For instance, in Toronto, despite comprising only 9% of the population, Black people represent 26% of COVID cases. This discrepancy illustrates health and economic inequalities that exist along racial lines. Toronto's Black community also purports disproportionate levels of vaccine hesitancy, which can also undoubtedly be attributed to Canada's long history of racism in healthcare. And while the City of Toronto announced a $6.8 million plan to address these issues, many are wondering why it took until the 11th month of the pandemic to come up with a substantive plan to address the racism in healthcare that the pandemic has underscored. Similarly, Catherine Scott has been impatiently waiting for the government to invest in a more equitable response to the pandemic. In her September articles, she noted that Trudeau's speech from the throne would elucidate what steps the federal government would take to support this vulnerable sector. We know now that the feds introduced amendments to EI and three new benefits for those who do not qualify for EI to replace the early emergency benefit, CERB. So these are the new CRB, CRCB, and CRSB An important aspect of these changes is that the quote-unquote floor has been set at $500 a week. This is seemingly a huge win for workers, as Scott writes, but she does point out that, quote, over half a million CERB recipients, mostly women, she says 55.9%, will receive no financial support from EI or the new set of recovery benefits. Coming out of CERB, she notes that more than 450,000 women, 21.5% of all current female CERB recipients, will be financially worse off under the new programs than they were on the CERB program. These people, she says, are those experiencing intersectional oppressions and have been left behind by this recovery plan. And since then, no meaningful action has been taken to address these issues in these extremely vulnerable populations, in labor or in long-term care. But what would meaningful action look like? So in terms of what the government can do, caring labor or reproductive labor, as feminist political economists have pointed out, is um, it's from cradle to grave, the foundation of human life and human health. It is the most important labor on the planet. What could be more important? Uh, But it remains invisibilized, it remains feminized, and it remains undervalued. So I think that there needs to be acknowledgement, a a really serious acknowledgement about the importance of this labor. Policies could indeed be put in place to ease the burden of that labor, to support that labor. And this could be done through um, all sorts of different kinds of fiscal and policy mechanisms. You know, taxation is just one important avenue for redistributing income and life chances particularly in the context of a pandemic, but it should be done regardless of the current pandemic that we're living under. As Omanic notes, taxation, and especially in the form of a wealth tax, can lead to the redistribution of capital that supports undermined communities. These are local and federal interventions that are important to address the dumpster fire that we've spent the last 15 minutes explaining. So far, we've just been talking about how Canada has been grappling with these problems. But we can't forget that all of this is happening in the context of a global crisis. This means that there are global dynamics at play. Now picture all the deepened inequalities we've talked about so far, 
deepened even further by the inequalities that exist between borders, between the world's wealthiest and the world's poorest. And we see these inequalities in vaccine manufacturing, purchasing, and distribution, especially when we consider the concept of vaccine nationalism. I think that in order to understand vaccine nationalism, we have to understand that free trade is not free. Trade is subject to laws and regulations that have been put in place by the IMF, by the World Bank, um, by free trade organizations that govern global production, trade and finance to flow freely. So while money, goods and services and certain bodies can move freely, such as wealthy males in their private jets, the vast majority of labor bo laboring bodies on the planet are subject to strict limitations on their movement, right? So they can't go somewhere else to get a vaccine, essentially. Dr. Amanik hasn't just pulled this idea of going somewhere else to get a vaccine out of thin air. This has happened in Canada. Last month, Rodney Baker, then president and CEO of the Great Canadian Gaming Corporation, and his wife, actor Yekaterina Baker, chartered a private plane to Beaver Creek, Yukon, in order to receive a vaccine. The millionaires did not complete any kind of self-isolation before arriving in Beaver Creek, which is a small and predominantly indigenous community and with a population of around 100 people. They checked out of their hotel without self-isolating after receiving the vaccine. And though they were each charged about $1,150 for this infraction, this is a very small fine and barely a penalty for someone who is reportedly made $45.9 million on stock options alone in the past 13 months. But getting back to Amanik's point, she's highlighting the current global arrangement of power and capital and the logic behind this arrangement, what some people call global neoliberalism. So part of the ideology or theology of free trade or what some refer to as global neoliberalism is that if something can be provided by the market, it will be provided by the market or ought to be provided. But these rules do more than that in, in a sense that they codify and enforce a system that prohibits states from shaping a broad range of public policies and services that were originally within the state's domain. So a really good example of what Omanic is referring to here is what we heard from York University professor Pat Armstrong earlier about the privatization of long-term care in Canada. So in 1995, Jean Chrétien's liberal government radically changed the system of federal transfer payments to the provinces, the bulk of which has been used to fund healthcare, education, and other public goods. In Ontario, Mike Harris's conservative government would make billions of dollars of cuts as federal and provincial governments across the country shifted towards fiscal conservatism and privatization. Partnering with the private sector became the solution to a lack of money flowing to the provinces. Long-term care was no exception. This is how residential care homes were privatized in Ontario. This is how neoliberalism functions. It prioritizes economic logic above all else. The term neoliberalism means a lot of different things to a lot of different schools of thought, but we are going to simplify it here. I think that Omanic uses the word theology here because neoliberalism is a kind of absolute. 
requiring a strict and dogmatic adherence to the sanctity of profit. So to put this differently, neoliberalism looks at profit and sees God. Neoliberalism is a thread that runs through much of what we've covered thus far. It can help to explain the privatization of long-term care. It can help to explain why we don't have adequate tax reserves to boost domestic vaccine production. And it can also explain the weakening of labor regulations and the unions that fight for them. And it'll also help explain why the global vaccine situation is so dire. Pharmaceuticals are commodities like any other commodity. And um, they're just subject to the market mechanism. Today, the World Trade Organization um, sets out the legally binding rules for international trade. And in theory, all countries have a say uh, in negotiations, but in reality, uh, it's rich uh, countries that have more clout, as well as private industry. The World Trade Forum, for example, the um, unelected barons of the global economy meet. Uh, every year in Davos, they have uh, they actually have a lot of clout. So the World Trade Organization rules around TRIPS. TRIPS is the trade-related aspects of intellectual property rights. This is the agreement that governs the rules around intellectual property on the global market. So the World Trade Organization rules around TRIPS were largely influenced by specific commercial interests as illustrated by the deep involvement of multinational corporations and various industry uh, coalitions leading up to the adoption of the TRIPS agreement. And so those sitting at the table in trade negotiations tend not to represent the broader interests of populations or of, of the constituents of nation states, but narrow corporate and business constituencies. So trade-related intellectual property rights then um, govern patents, and this includes patents on vaccines. So historically, the purpose of granting a patent to an inventor was to ensure that that invention could be made available to the public. What TRIPS did was kind of the opposite. Um, By tying access to medicines to purchasing power, it effectively left out the majority of the world's population. So one could argue that they are in fact a deviation from free trade by allowing this um, so-called inventor to exploit the invention and to prevent others from doing so. So under TRIPS, uh, patent holders have exclusive rights for an invention for a period of no less than 20 years. But in the case of multiple patents on a single drug, that period of exclusivity can extend beyond the 20-year period. But what's interesting about it is that a drug company can just make a a very simple change to a drug and repatent it. So they can, in that way, maintain patents for a long time and um, exclusive rights. So there's an article, though, in um, TRIPS, it's Article 27.2, that actually allows states to restrict patentability of inventions if they pose a threat to human life and health. And countries can also grant compulsory licenses for production within their borders, allowing them to develop generic equivalents of a patent holder's drugs in the case of a health emergency. Um, And in this case, royalties will still flow to the patent holder, 
But in a sense, this is meaningless for many countries, including the poorest countries, because they actually don't have a pharmaceutical industry. They don't have the capacity to produce the drugs. So it's hard to say what the impact of this has been on the current pandemic. But this last October, India and South Africa asked the WTO to waive protections for patents and copyrights in relation to the prevention, containment, or treatment of COVID-19 until widespread vaccination is in place globally and the majority of the world's population has developed immunity. And this actually was turned down by the WTO, mostly by the larger European powers. Yeah, it was the United States, the United Kingdom, and other developed countries that opposed the request. And they argued that it was an extreme measure and that there was no evidence that it would help. Supporters of TRIPS, which basically are the pharmaceutical companies and their investors argue that they're necessary for research and development and innovation, that without TRIPS and the promise of high profits from some drugs, we wouldn't see innovation in the pharmaceutical sector. Well, there's many, there's many arguments that have challenged this. Uh, we see surplus profits going to shareholders, to stockbrokers, to lobbying, to marketing and advertising uh, in the tune of billions and billions of dollars. And uh, Big Pharma is one of the most profitable sectors and has been for decades in the global economy. The patent system hasn't resulted in private sector research and development for diseases that do not make a profit, um, essentially diseases of the poor. And this is what health advocates call the uh, 1090 split, where you have 90% of the research going to 10% of the drugs that are profitable and mostly directed at people living in the global north. And then 10% of the research going to the 90% of people in the global south. Um, so hundreds of civil society organizations have petitioned member governments of the World Tra uh, Trade Organization and have also petitioned the Canadian government, urging it to support the WTO proposal from South Africa and in India for COVID-19 treatments, vaccines, and medical supplies. Again, we can see how the emphasis on the economic has failed everyday people. The refusal to amend TRIPS in light of the unprecedentedly dire need to distribute a pharmaceutical commodity, <clears throat> the COVID vaccine, will undoubtedly result in more COVID deaths around the globe. That being said, Omanic did share some slightly more hopeful approaches to global vaccine distribution. I think it's probably worth mentioning, though, that there are these other mechanisms in place globally for access to essential medicines, and this is um, COVAX. So for low and middle income countries that uh, can't rely on low or no cost vaccination distribution, they do it through what is called the COVAX AMC accelerator. And this is a, basically a global collaboration that, that Bill and Melinda Gates have invested a lot into, as well as the WHO, UNICEF, oh, the World Bank as well. And this is a collaboration to accelerate the um, development, production, and equitable access to COVID-19 tests, treatments, and vaccines. But, but basically, it's, it's kind of a Band-Aid solution to a certain extent. It's, it, it can't really guarantee uh, fair and equitable access to every country in the world. Canada has, in fact, provided money to this facility. But one of the stipulations as well is that COVAX can't purchase vaccines that are priced above just around $21 per dose. 
So vaccines aren't affordable, and this actually could prevent acquisition of one or both of the two presently um, leading vaccine candidates. So the Moderna vaccine and the, the Pfizer vaccine, because they're too expensive. Yeah, so in, in a sense, though, these kinds of initiatives, these sort of charitable initiatives, reinforce a business approach to a specific disease to us so it's a specific solution so they're they're vertical interventions they focus on single issues I, I call this Bill and Melinda Gatesism so and I'm not I'm not saying that vaccines uh, aren't important but robust and accessible health systems also have to exist um, where they're most needed so these kinds of initiatives also deflect attention away from the social determinants of health and from health system strengthening. Where we lack robust systems, pandemics will continue to persist. Omanic reminded us that while many weren't prepared for the COVID-19 pandemic, we could have, and perhaps should, have seen this coming. We, we tend to think of these novel coronaviruses or zoonoses as accidents of history. Um, people are talking about COVID-19 as the one in a hundred year pandemic, but we've seen more of these novel pandemics um, in the past two decades, um, and they're intensifying. And novel viruses aren't accidents of history, especially zoonoses, which is, you know, what most of our pandemics are, you know, um, they've uh, originated from zoonoses, viruses of animal origins. And this is because of things like pressure on forested land, uh, wildlife and livestock that are products of deforestation, of soil erosion, of global heating, of wetland degradation, insect infestations, as well as the intensification of industrial meat and poultry production. So we essentially have a global political economy that is creating uh, or setting the stage for more virulent pandemics to emerge. And this is something that we're not addressing. And there's a, a field of study called One Health, which examines the relationship between animal and human diseases in the context of the environment. What those scholars remind us of is the biodiversity serves as a disease regulator. And by destroying it, it's not only likely that we will experience more spillover events from animals to humans, but that they could this could also kickstart another pandemic. So we have a situation then when that there's an underinvestment in the real needs of people as well as our ecosystem, our environment, um, which essentially is the social determinants of health, right? So the social determinants of health dovetail with our basic human rights, the basic human rights of all humans to nutritious food, to clean air and water, to a healthy ecosystem, to proper shelter, to bodily security and autonomy, to healthcare and medicines, to adequate rest and leisure, to community and self-determination. These are the requirements of all humans. And we see that all of these are being eroded by our current mode of global governance. If you've learned nothing else from this hour, hear this. Global governance serves the financial gains of very few, to the extreme detriment of the many. This is well exemplified by the extreme capital gains of millionaires and billionaires throughout a pandemic that has taken so much from the rest of us. Jeff Bezos, CEO and founder of Amazon, 
increased his wealth by an estimated $48 billion from March to June of 2020. That's just a four-month time span. As well, Zoom's founder, Eric Wen, grossed $2.5 billion, and former Microsoft CEO Steve Ballmer amassed $15.7 billion over that exact same four-month period. All things considered, the wealth of U.S. billionaires has increased by $1.1 trillion since the pandemic began. This is a 40% increase. The world of business and finance isn't fair and hasn't been for some time. As you can read in a recent Arthur Abed by Alex Purdy, even when laypeople on Reddit try to game the stock market, they end up increasing the wealth of BlackRock, one of the big three management firms, managing around 8.6 trillion US dollars. BlackRock was one of the biggest beneficiaries of the GME short squeeze, holding a 13.2% stake in GME. These are Omanix barons. These are the people positioned to profit off of global suffering and chaos, working within a system that allows and encourages them to do so. But I don't know. I, I mean, I, this might sound weird, but I, I am actually cautiously optimistic because I think that there's so much more uh, grassroots organization that's going on and, and sort of networks of networks in terms of sharing strategies and, and also people that are becoming much more knowledgeable and pissed off about what's going on. And so hopefully we'll see more political mobilization around these issues. We are emboldened by Omanic's optimism. She has been following the implications of these economic trends for decades, trying to understand how they entrench oppression in our everyday, how they change how we relate to each other and ourselves, our bodies, and our labor. For many, COVID has brought these conversations out of the academy and into the forefront of our collective consciousness. We hope that this dialogue will foster real change, and we hope that Omanic is right. A big thank you to our gracious interviewee, Professor Colleen O'Manick, and thanks also to Catherine Scott, Professor Pat Armstrong of York University, um, for the work that is referenced in this episode. A special thanks as well to the journalist whose work we relied on throughout this episode, Nora Loretto, Paul Webster, and Sara Mojahatsade. If you like this podcast, check out our website, trentarthur.ca. You can find articles about Trent, Nagochuanong Peterborough happenings, art, poetry, puzzles, and more. Please consider supporting our work through a monthly donation. You can donate on our website, www.trentarthur.ca. We are Nick Taylor and Brazil Gaffney Knox, the co editors in chief of Arthur Newspaper, Volume 55. Arthur Newspaper is the independent student press at Trent University. Our office is located in the student-owned Victorian mansion called Sadler House in Nogajiwanong, Peterborough, Ontario, Canada. We research, record, and learn on the traditional territory of the Michisagig Anishinaabe. We are deeply grateful for their care of and teachings about the land. May we strive to be decolonial in all that we do. Do a good job of editing, okay? We will. We will. <laughs>